Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to be discussing an article from the July issue of the Beef Watch newsletter titled Weighing Risk and Reward of Annual Forages. To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by two of the co-authors, Ben Beckman, who's a Nebraska Extension Educator, as well as Dr. Mary Janowski, who's a Nebraska Extension Beef Systems Specialist. Thanks for joining me today. Pleasure to be here. Good to see you, Aaron. Well, as we think about this year in particular, across much of the state, we're seeing very dry conditions. And this is setting up a situation where I think many producers are looking for opportunities or options to harvest additional forages. And one of those forages that we can sometimes get some value from is annual forages. Talk through with us some things we need to recognize as we're sitting here midsummer about annual forages, what the options are with those as well as the potential risk and reward of utilizing those either for grazing or for harvested feed? Well, I think uh, for me, the first thing is deciding when you're going to plant, because to me that dictates what you plant. Uh, right here in July, uh, warm season annuals like sedan grass, sorghum sedan, pearl millet, they're going to be the ones that give you the most bang for your buck because they're going to produce more biomass and then the truth is people think of them as being lower quality, but they're not. It's about the stage at which you harvest them, whether that's grazing or actually mowing them down and trying to make hay. It's all about hitting them at the right maturity for the type of quality you're looking for. Then once we get to about August 1st, things become a bit more questionable. And we've done some research you know, near me where we were trying to actually look at that, the balance between the warm season and cool season. And over a three-year period, from August 1st to August 15th, the warm seasons often did outperform the cool seasons up until about August 15th in terms of yield. This may be a, a place where a mix might make sense if you want to graze, because if you do happen to have a cool fall, then having those cool seasons in there is a good um risk management factor if if it's particularly warm one having those warm seasons is also you know a risk management once we get about august 15th it's time to go to cool seasons like oats and from august 15th to september 1st you can plant oats and get you know some bang for your buck not going to be able to hay that because you're not going to have the the drying conditions you need but you can graze it so in my mind, that's kind of the way I think about it is let's first say, when am I going to plant it? And then decide uh, what I'm going to plant uh, based off of that planting date. Ben, you have other thoughts? I, I think that's a great initial question to ask, Mary. Um, and that points us kind of in the general direction, whether we want to go more towards those warm season summer annuals or those more cool season you know, annual options. Um, and then once we get to that point, I, I think another question or follow-up question is, what do we want to do with this? Um, do we want to graze it? Do we want to chop it for silage? Do we want to, you know, produce some sort of hay off of it? And that's going to help narrow those, you know, options down even more. You know, if we want to graze something and we're, we're planting in the summer, we're going to want something with some regrowth potential. So um, a sedan grass, a, a sorghum sedan hybrid. Um, you know, a, a pearl millet, something along those lines that's going to regrow if we give it, you know, a little bit of time and some stubble height and, um, you know, God willing, we have some moisture to, to bring it along too. Um, if we want hay, 
we want something that's going to have a little bit finer stem too. That might affect our planting population. Um, we probably don't want to go uh, full forage sorghum um, if we're looking for hay production, you know, but we might consider something like a, a German millet or, a, um, you know, teff grass, something along those lines. If we're looking for really high quality hay, teff would be a great option. And then if we're doing silage, um, you know, the, the stem size doesn't matter as much. We don't need to dry that down. So we're just looking for pounds produced and then in hitting that proper window to get quality and, and moisture. So yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Mary. You First, we need to figure out when we want to plant. And then the next question, how we utilize it can really help decide which species are going to be an option for our operation. So one of the things that you said was about the idea of planting population and I will say, I think that's an important one because we can get away with lower planting populations than what we traditionally recommend. However, it does increase that stem size. And so thinking about making sure that if we're wanting to do something like hay, that we really do work towards those uh, higher end of that planting population. So, you know, like 20 pounds for something like a sorghum sedan grass, 20 pounds per acre there's a reason why we suggest that. And that is to get those stem sizes down. And I also think that's useful for grazing. I do want to point out that the later we plant, right? So if we plant by August 15th, I mean, it takes 35, 45 days for you to get something that's even grazable. Uh, Likely with these later planting dates, now you're not going to get a lot of regrowth. So you may not select something for regrowth, even if you are going to graze it, you may still shoot for yield. One thing I was just thinking about is, you know, we're seeing a lot of wheat harvested now and will be over the next three, four weeks in Nebraska and wheat stubble can be a good place to go back and plant uh, some forage crop into. I think just thinking about there then also is, you know, residue management, making sure you are able to get that uh, seed germinated and up. Uh, Also just thinking about, uh, you know, as you mentioned, what are we going to do with that crop? And uh, foxtail millet, especially out in the western part of the state, is very water use efficient. So I think also thinking about water, especially if you're looking at, um, you know, maybe irrigated wheat, how much do you have left in terms of your allocation, things like that. Uh, the warm season grasses tend to be more water use efficient than the cool season. And so that's something to take into account as well. Uh, let's talk a little about some of the risks in terms of grazing or utilizing annual forages, what are some things we need to pay attention to? Thinking specifically here about prussic acid as well as nitrates. Well, Aaron, I want to go back to one comment you made about foxtail millet, because I think it's a really good one. And I also think we're talking about risk and foxtail millet is relatively cheap and it's got a short growing period. So from a risk standpoint, if you don't know that you'll have enough moisture on dry land, it's actually a really good option on the after wheat, because you put it in, if you get a rain, great, you know, life is good. And if you don't, you didn't put a whole lot into it. So I do think it's a, it's a great option recognizing that it's going to be a lower yielder if conditions are really good. So you have to decide, am I at a water limited situation and it's going to be very iffy. So if you're more Western, like you said, versus uh, more Eastern, you probably don't want to go with that because you're going to have such lower yields. So now back to your question about risks and prussic acid. (laughs) So 
I think on risks, um, I think there's two big things that we need to talk about. And especially given the dry conditions, we also need to talk about nitrates. With prussic acid, I think everybody understands that the short um, sorghum sedans and sorghums and sedan grass all can produce prussic acid. And so you've got to let them get uh, high enough or mature enough to where they don't have that high risk of prussic acid before you start grazing. So with sedan grass, we usually say 18 inches. And with sorghum sedans, it's usually more like uh, 24, so two feet. Mm -hmm. uh, when we start thinking about the other side of things, it's when we get later into the season and we start getting frosts, we once again, regardless of maturity, have that risk of prussic acid. So <clears throat> there's kind of two things in my mind to think about. One is that if I know that I'm in a situation where I may end up having stunted growth, going with pearl millet or a millet of some sort, because I don't want to deal with the risk of prussic acid with the young material, uh, might be worth doing if I wanted to graze. And then the other one is if I know I want to graze late in the season, I might again shoot towards something like pearl millet um, or another millet. So I really like pearl millet from a yield standpoint. However, sometimes it is harder to get the seed from pearl millet because it yields more like sorghum sedan. And in fact, if you have ground that does not have, it doesn't like wet feet. That's one important thing. But if you have ground that's a bit drier, pearl millet can yield just as well as sorghum sedan, which I think a lot of people underestimate its yield potential. I, I would throw on top of that, Mary, the prussic acid is something that we got to be aware of, but it um, it's more from the, I guess, labor side that we want to really consider it. You know, I, I don't think it's um, something that we have to be scared of because we can manage around it, but it's, are you willing to spend that, you know, extra time of, of making sure that plants are tall enough before we initiate grazing or later on in the season, you know, we get a frost pulling animals off. We've got a place to put them, um, feed them for a couple of days before we reintroduce them to that, that field that's been frosted. Um, you know, that's the big consideration. So it's, it's figuring out what we have in terms of labor that we're willing to spend. Um, and the other consideration I, I think that gets, we need to throw in there is that since that prussic acid is concentrated in the young shoots, if we have enough moisture to get some regrowth, you know, if we planted, um, you know, like a, a sorghum sedan today, we could possibly graze it and, and then have enough um, heat and moisture to get some regrowth again. Those new shoots are going to be um, high in prussic acid again. And so if we can't graze that entire field um, before the new shoots start to, to pop up and, and regrow um, in those um, plants that have been previously grazed, a uh, good idea is to, you know, start to portion that off and, and put a back fence up or or something to limit cattle access to those areas where um, we might have some new shoot development and we're again getting that prussic acid risk built back up. That's a great point, Ben. And I would also add that if you do get uh, go through and graze and get some regrowth, uh, one option is to just delay grazing that regrowth until seven days after the killing frost and let that frost um, bust those cells, so to speak. Um, and then you can utilize that that plant material. And one final thing too on, on the prussic acid side, we're only worried about this from a grazing standpoint. 
prussic acid dissipates out of the plant, it turns into a gas and, and leaves the plant. So if we're considering, you know, any of these species for uh, silage or hay crops, um, the prussic acid isn't something that we need to, to worry about. So let's talk a little about nitrates. And I think annual forages, those can be an issue. I think we all get questions on those. I think the other challenge is that at times nitrates are one of these things that kind of can sneak up on you and surprise you. What I mean by that is sometimes we look at a field and it looks drought stressed and we test for nitrates and there's not a problem. And then another time we go out and we say, boy, this would be a field that we don't think there'd be any problem with and it's hot. So just talk through us a little bit, understanding nitrates, nitrate issues. How do we manage around that? What are some things people should be aware of with that? Well, I will say one of the things that I think people don't realize is that when you do have that drought stress plant and then you get a rain, then that's when it really gets hot. Like for the next week, it'll be really hot because it now got the moisture to be able to um, pull up more nitrogen. So we do tend to see, you know, ebb and flow. Um, but for me, I think one of the big things to understand is that there's management opportunities to help reduce or mitigate the risk. And the big one is that you recognize that nitrate levels are highest in the bottom part of the plant and then they decrease as you go up into the plant. So the leaves and the tops of plants are usually the lowest nitrate levels. And so if you do have a uh, high risk, such as these drought situations, um, I know it's very tempting to want to utilize, fully utilize, right? The, all the plant material is out there because we're low on forage. But if it is high nitrates, uh, allowing them to be selective in terms of their grazing can uh, be a great way to be able to make use of some of that resource without having um, a disaster from those animals actually getting too much nitrates. And they can self-adapt, right? So allowing them uh, the ability to be selective. And let's be honest, they're going to end up trampling more of the forage, which I know is not something we all want to have happen but then they can work their way down into the profile and actually have um, the microbes being adapted in the room and then they can take higher levels of nitrate. We tell people, you know, test, select the fields that are the lowest first and work your way up into the highest fields. I think that's pretty useful. Um, the higher the quality of the forage, the lower the risk. And that comes down to uh, energy. So another option um, which can lower risk is actually feeding some corn or some grain of some sort to get a little bit more energy in the room and to make use of that nitrogen. Uh, so there are things you can do uh, to reduce risk. Lush forages are less risky than dry forages. So hay is actually the nightmare, to be honest. Um, <laughs> So grazing is, is lower risk than hay. Uh, silage is probably better than both of those just because um, the ensiling process typically reduces the nitrates by about 25 to 50%. It really depends a lot on your management for silage. If you get good fermentation, you can get it down 50%. Anything to add to that, Ben? I, I think Mary hit the nail on the head. I guess really big point with hay being kind of our really high risk thing is the really nice thing is we 
don't have to use that right away. So making sure that we're getting, um, you know, that hay tested, send it into a lab, figure out what we actually have for nitrates in that. And then we, we can, you know, dilute it out amongst the diet if it is a little bit hot and, and still utilize those bales um, is really important. It, we don't necessarily, again, one of those things we can manage that risk. So it's not something that we should be scared of. We just need to be aware of it and, and make sure that we're taking the right steps to prevent it from becoming a bigger issue. I'd like to switch gears here a little bit and just talk about grazing management and thinking about how do we capture the most value we can from this standing annual forage. And I think as I work with producers and we look at grazing annual forages, frequently they're growing very rapidly. Uh, we're waiting to turn out to a certain point in time. And then we turn out and oftentimes we get quite a bit of trampling and fouling. And when we're looking at how valuable forage is, uh, that can be, I think, pretty frustrating and discouraging at times. Talk through with us, what are some things we can think about in terms of capturing that forage that we've grown and getting the most from it that we can? There's really, in my mind, there's two options, right? One is limiting access, so doing some strip grazing. But if the plants are, are still actively growing, right, the question is, do you need the high quality and thus you don't want it to get too far ahead of you? And in that case, what can you do in terms of um, at least rotationally grazing and starting early? I would say I, I always joke that people who are really good perennial forage managers tend to have a more difficult time with annuals because they have this mindset of, you know, reserving, like not getting on it when it's immature and trying to make sure they reserve enough leaf area index for that plant to come back. And the truth is annuals can take a beating. Um, so I tend to think about really high stocking densities are quite helpful with the annuals. Uh, strip grazing can, especially if, if it, you're only gonna get a one time graze off of it, like if you're planting, I mean, honestly, if you're planting the next couple of weeks, you're probably not gonna get uh, two grazings off of it. So you might as well just plan on fully utilizing one. And if you get a little bit of regrowth, yay. Um, so in that case, I would say strip grazing is your friend. We can more than double the utilization and the animal grazing days off of a piece of land by uh, strip grazing. Uh, the other option is to do something like swath grazing. And I do think that I know fuel prices are high right now, but especially when those plants get very mature, swath grazing can really increase the, um, the amount of utilization you get and reduce the selectivity. So it's worth uh, considering that extra effort of swathing. And, and um, the other interesting thing about swath grazing is that you know, there are opportunities here to think about like trying to, especially in Western Nebraska, cut those plants at the stage you really want uh, those animals to be able to utilize them. So managing that quality with swath grazing uh, doesn't work quite as well in Eastern Nebraska, just because of the potential for rainfall uh, that we have. You probably don't want to cut it too early. Ben, you have some other thoughts about increasing utilization? I think some of it also goes back to, you know, what animals are, are we planning on, on grazing and making sure that we're meeting the demands and not overfeeding, you know, especially as we get into fall, some of those, you know, oat brassica mixtures can be 
really, really high quality. Um, and so if we're running dry cows on that, we actually might have a, a little bit of a missed opportunity. We might be, you know, feeding energy and, and protein levels way above what those animals actually need. So if we don't need to be, you know, putting body condition back on those, those cows, um, we might consider a way of limiting and, and giving them some lower quality forage as a little bit of a filler or um, utilizing a growing animal instead on, on some of those acres. Um, and in terms of, you know, strip grazing, making sure that your animals are prepared for that is, is important. Um, that, you know, the easiest way a lot of time to do that is, is with a, a hot wire. So making sure that they're broke to electric fence, that they're ready for that. And then um, that you're planning ahead. If you're doing something like a, a sorghum sedan, um, that's going to be a really tall, you know, um, high crop. You're going to have to mow a strip through there probably to be able to put a, a hot wire up so um, that it's not getting grounded out all over the place. So making sure that you have all of that set up ahead of time. Um, so we're ready and, and able to, to graze it efficiently. Um, and then with the windrow grazing, I, I think you make a really great point, even on Eastern Nebraska, if we build that windrow correctly, um, we can use that opportunity too here. Um, it's just making sure that that windrow is dried down, that we have, you know, actual quality hay in there. Um, it's a, a nice fluffy high windrow um, that's going to stay off the ground a little bit and um, isn't just going to deteriorate if we're cutting that too late um, and we aren't able to get it dried down, then that windrow is just going to turn to mush and we're not going to really get anything useful out of it. Yeah, your your point about um, thinking about the animals requirements, you know, on the on oats and brassicas, if they're planted in the late summer, you know, August 15th or so, the quality is really, really high. And in fact, we've done some work where uh, we did strip graze dry cows, and we were given 400 cows, uh, about an eighth of an acre a day, uh, and they maintain body condition because the quality is so high. So you can limit feed uh, if you have that high quality forage. That's a really, uh, really a good point. In fact, the, that type of forage, you know, just late, plant, late summer planted oats is good enough for uh, lactating cow and peak lactation, and I think that's something that people way underestimate the quality of. So it's great for growing cattle. It's great for, you know, replacements or young cows. Um, if you have fall cows, that's a great option for it. And I do agree about the, the windrow grazing. I was just saying, I probably wouldn't be cutting it in August if that was the, the, um, immature stuff and letting it sit all the way through till January and then try to utilize it. Uh, but you are correct that it can work in Eastern Nebraska. I guess the other thing I would just add is, you know, you might think about planting different mixes. And so what I mean by that is you may choose to go with a, a summer annual now. And then as we get to uh, the first of August, depending on what your, your land base is, what you have available, you know, you then go with something like a oats, brassicas. Uh, so what we can do a little bit is kind of set up a forage chain where uh, we may windrow graze um, some summer annuals and only have maybe two or three weeks of of grazing there in the windrow, but we capture a lot of that. And then as we get into late September, early October, we've got some of these spring annuals that were summer planted that are high quality and we could actually windrow graze those as well. So I think you need to be a little, or can be creative as we think about annual forages, uh, recognizing putting together pieces may actually be the best option as you think about trying to get to crop residue 
or something like that. Yeah, it's a great point, Aaron. Um, there's a lot of different options and a lot of different ways you can put the puzzle together. I do want to point out we've been we've been focusing on the grasses, and there's a reason, right? We focus on the grasses because those are the biomass producers. Those are the ones that are going to produce our forage. There are some opportunities, and like we've kind of mentioned a little bit, the brassicas. Um, so we're talking about you know turnips, radishes, rapeseed, those types of things which really fit with the cool seasons. And that would be my suggestion for when I plant them. Um, and I do want to point out that they tend to be really great nitrogen scavengers. So they will be very high in nitrates. Um, I don't get nearly as concerned about them being high in nitrates because they also are also high in energy. So they kind of have their own buffering mechanism put in there. Uh, so if you have a mix, I would encourage you to, to actually analyze them separately, uh, the grass versus the brassicas, to make sure you actually understand how hot your grass is. So I think that's something that's uh, really, really important to consider. And then one other thing that we haven't talked about, and that is, I said September 1st is like the, what I call the drop dead date for planting the spring uh, cool season. So, you know, oats um, or uh, barley or uh, spring wheat, but uh, you got to recognize that planting after that point, you're not going to get very much out of it. And so you might as well shoot for something that's winter hardy at that point um, and think about getting some spring grazing. And planting the winter hardy stuff early, you can get a little bit of grazing. Uh, so like, let's say if I planted August 15th and I planted uh, something that's winter hardy, you might be able to get some fall grazing, but you got to recognize that you're probably giving up about half um, of the grazing you could get, maybe a little bit more than half, uh, because those plants are not going to produce nearly as much biomass as the spring annuals will. Then Mary, anything else on this topic you'd like to discuss today? I don't think I have anything other than I would say we do have a lot of um, information on the beef.unl.edu website, including um, suggested seeding rates um, and seeding depths. And it really is important to get uh, your depths right. Uh, and actually, in terms of the brassicas, one thing I have heard um, continuously is some people really hate them. And it seems to be a Western thing. And I think it's because they're very shallow planted. And if you don't have that surface moisture, they don't really do very well. Well, thanks again for joining me today. Always glad to be here, Aaron. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the conversation. Well, for more information on the topic that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I would encourage you to visit the beef.unl.edu website. The title of the article that we discussed today was Weighing Risk and Reward of Annual Forages. As Dr. Mary Janowski said, there are a plethora of articles, Redneb guides, videos on this topic. And again, those all can be found at the beef.unl.edu website.